Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 31, The Stage and the City. An interview with Dr Elodie Pagliar. In this episode, we step back into the world of Greek theatre, and in particular, the plays of Sophocles. In the second part of my conversation with Dr Pagliar, we discussed her work on the minor characters in Sophocles' plays and what they tell us about the changes in Athenian society during the 5th century BCE. To remind you, Dr Pagliar is honorary associate in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Sydney and lecturer and scientific collaborator in the Department of Ancient Civilizations at the University of Basel. She's currently leading a research project on the Greek theatre in Roman Italy, funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. She is the author of The Stage and the City, Non-Elite Characters in the Tragedies of Sophocles, published in Paris in 2017. She is currently co-editing two forthcoming collective volumes, one on Greek theatre and meta-theatre, Definitions, Problems and Limits, and one on theatre and autocracy in the ancient world. In parallel to her interest in ancient Greek theatre, she's also working on the social structure of classical Athens and the emergence of democracy. During our conversation, we talked about the character of the guard in Antigone as an example of Dr Pagliard's thesis. If you need a reminder about how that character interacts with King Creon, Ismene and Antigone, have a listen to episode 8 of the podcast, Nomos vs Physis, before listening to the interview. In your book, The Stage in the City, you take the complete plays of Sophocles and show that in a way in which minor characters are depicted on stage varies between early and late plays, and that that can tell us something about Greek society. So can you expand a bit on that for us? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm happy to to, to do so. Thank you for, for giving me the, the opportunity to, to talk a bit about that. It's always a pleasure to to share what I've been working on with uh, interested people, hopefully interested people. <laughs> Excellent. So indeed, what I did is um, I took the, the seven extant plays of Sophocles. I must say that I should probably have included more of the fragments that we have. It's a bit of a regret, if you want, but it means that there is still work to do, and uh, that's, that's good too. <laughs> so... I took those seven extant plays of Sophocles, and instead of having a look at the usual suspects, Antigone, Oedipus, all the big heroes and heroines of those plays, I had a look at all those secondary so-called minor characters, all of them, the nurses, the guards, the little sailors, the soldiers, all of those people, the pedagogues, all those people from non-elite background. So not the kings, not the queens, not the princesses or, or the, the noble characters, just the non-elite ones. And what I did is I, I took the, the plays in their suspected chronological order. <laughs> there, there are, of course, a bit of discussion about that, as there is always. And it's good too. <laughs> so I took them in, in the chronological order. And what I realized is that the way in which those non-elite characters are portrayed, are characterized in early plays, is very, very different from, from what they look like in late plays. 
So in early plays, they tend to be rather passive characters. They are very, whatever they say is very often overlooked by the protagonist or by the principal character, or they are misunderstood. And they have very, very little influence on the development of the plot. What, whatever they do doesn't really change anything. So they, they are very much in the background. At some point, uh, scholars even qualified them as being mere literary devices. That is a pretext, a pretext character used by the playwright to tell a story that he couldn't put on stage. And that's very easy to understand for messengers, for example. If you couldn't, as 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 you know, they, they, they couldn't really represent people being killed on stage. So you hop, you would get a messenger and, and use him to tell you about the whole killing scene. And then he would just exit the, the stage and that's it. You never heard about him anymore. So that's that's the picture we, we get from early characters. In later plays, this picture changes quite a lot. So more and more of those secondary non-elite characters are portrayed as being very active, as speaking a lot, as interacting a lot with principal character and even with the big heroes, the protagonists of those, of those plays. They are characterized as being more outspoken. They actually say what they think. <laughs> And they are not afraid anymore to, to voice their opinion. And the elite characters take them into account more as well. They listen to them. They act according to what they, those non-elite people suggest. It means that those secondary characters start to actually have an effect on the plot, which is something that was very, very rare or non-existent for, for early plays. So why is it interesting? Why it's not it's not only a matter of um, a literary evolution of tragedy, if you want, or of Sophocles, the playwright himself. I think that it really corresponds to a change of status of non-elite citizens in Athenian society during the second half of the fifth century. So this second half of the fifth century is really a time at, during which democracy develops. At that time, non-elite citizens really become able to be much more active in, in the political life of their city. They not only passively vote, if you want, but they start to be able to talk to the assembly sometimes or to voice their opinion. And more and more of them take part actively into the political decision process of Athens. So you have this big democratic development that was qualified uh, by some as really some sort of democracy that became almost radical, if you want. 
from certain point of view. But if you take the point of view of non-elite citizens, it just means that they actually had much more power. So I think there is a correspondence between the way in which those secondary characters are, are, are portrayed on stage and the evolution of the status of non-elite citizens in, in Athens. But it's not only a matter of having the plays reflecting what was going on in society. I think it's very much a two-way process too, because in the audience, among the spectators of those plays, of the plays of Sophocles in the, the theater in Athens, there were quite a lot of non-elite people, I mean, among the audience. So they were actually watching those plays. They could think about what they were seeing on stage. And for them to have non-edit characters displayed or portrayed as being active, as being able to voice their opinion, as being taken into account, it must, it must have worked as a powerful model to follow or to, or to get inspired from for their own place in society. So that's I, I see that really as a as, as a two-way process, the theater and society working as mm, not mirrors of each other, but really there is there, there is a, a two-way influence. So perhaps it's it's good to take a few concrete examples. Um, perhaps since you have worked on, on Antigone, we could we could have a look at the example of the guard in Antigone. Ah, yes, he's a very interesting character, isn't he? Yeah, he is a very interesting character, and a lot has been has been written on on him. And I think there is still a lot more to do, which is always great. <laughs> so, what I would like to 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 say about him, it's I mean, it's not the only interpretation of this character, of course. What I, my idea is not. Uh, deleting all the, all the others' idea of how you could explain this character. But one of the, the, the interesting things about him is that he appears twice on stage. Once he comes to the, the King Creon to tell him that uh, the body of Polynices that someone has performed some funerary ritual on the body of Polynices, but they don't really know who it was. They can't, they can't tell. The guard has been kind of chosen by lot to, to, to go to the king and tell him that. So the way in which he is portrayed during his first appearance on stage is very interesting. He's portrayed as being a very, very subordinate character compared to the king. The King Creon treats him very, very badly, treats him as a as as an inferior, really, as as a subject, almost as if he was an enslaved person. Whereas um, there are good chances that the guard would have been a free man. So that's that's the first time he appears on stage. Then 
he well he exits and then at some point later in the play he comes back to the king bringing Antigone whom the the, the he and the, and the other guards have caught uh, performing those rituals on the body of, of her brother when he comes back bringing Antigone he is almost another character he's able to express himself in a very, very clear way, in a very persuasive way. He really persuades Creon. And you can analyze very finely the, uh, the vocabulary he uses, the structure of his sentences, and they are very different from, from what, what was going on before. He, he's portrayed as, as someone who is who has quite a lot of rhetorical skills, actually. He's able to, to succeed in argumenting against the king. He's almost really winning the debates against the king. And that, that's something that must have been quite a powerful image for non-elite citizens in the audience. There must have been people who had probably served as guards in the, in the Athenian army and who, who were from non-elite background and having someone who is able to, to win a debate against a king who, who embodies, you know, uh, um, a superior social status with much more education that would have allowed him to, to speak more persuasively. I mean, that's, that's something that, that must have been very very powerful. It's, it must have served as a sort of, you know, example to follow, perhaps, for, for, for those, those non-elite people in the, in the audience. And I, I feel like I should interrupt and emphasize here that you're studying that language in the original Greek. So that's coming through, that change in his tone, in his use of language comes through in the original, and obviously I'm only looking at things in translation, as most people are, and we rely on our translators to reflect that change as well um, and show it as effectively as it does in the original Greek. But, uh, yeah, that image of the power of the theatre at that point where a, an ordinary person could see an ordinary person getting the better of a king who, frankly, has been a bit horrible to pretty much everybody by that point, um, could could absolutely have been a very powerful uh, tool for suggesting the possibility of change, if not more actively promoting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then, yeah, as your your last sentence is interesting because there there, there would be an interest, uh, an important debate about whether Sophocles really wanted to promote such a change or whether he was not that much of a democrat. That's that's a wall. <laughs> that's another discussion, I guess. But yeah, definitely in the language in the in the original, but in in most good translations, you it it also it's also conveyed. So, mm. so no problem if you if you can't really have a look at the <laughs> at the precise ancient Greek text. No problem, you will see. <laughs> get the picture and and you find this uh, this effect uh, in not just in that character but in many others as well as the, as the plays develop or as Sophocles develops yeah. as a playwright I should say probably yeah 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 abs absolutely there is another example for example with uh, there is another example with the choruses 
In the seven extant plays, we have twice a chorus of sailors. One in an early play, the Ajax. One in a very late play, uh, Philoctetes. So twice the chorus is men who are subordinate to one of the big heroes of the of the plays. And in Ajax, it's very clear that those sailors they are completely dependent on the big hero Ajax, who is their master, if you want. They, they, they can't really exist without him. They say they say so very clearly. If Ajax disappears or if he kills himself, the sailors they are they, they don't really exist anymore. They don't know what to do. And they are not on on stage, they are not very active. They don't they don't do much. Ajax doesn't really listen to, to them. Of course, for choruses, it's important to, to remember that there were parts that were really kind of almost isolated songs within the play, but you could have the chorus fails. So the chorus leader sometimes talking to the other characters. And that's where we can analyze a, a bit better the relationships between the chorus and, and the other characters. So here in Ajax, they are very much in the background. They can't, they can't do much. In Philoctetes, again, a chorus of sailors, but they are very, very active. They suggest a lot. They, 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 I was tempted to say they move around. The, the choruses were always moving around, but those in Philoctetes, you, you almost physically see them as more active. The, 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 the Corypheus speaks a lot with the other characters. He doesn't always do what was what he's supposed to do. And and principal characters listen to, to those sailors. They, they, they argue with them, they, they debate with them. And so for a chorus that is supposed to represent the same kind of characters, sailors, male sailors, then the, the, the difference is, is really striking, I think. From, from this early to the to the late play. And the chorus of Antigone is very interesting. Within the same play, the chorus at the beginning of, the, of, of Antigone seems to be a bit of an old school chorus, if, if I can say, say so. That is a chorus that looks more like the choruses of early plays. They, they don't really like, um, their voice, their, their opinion. They are very much subordinate to Creon and they might here and there let hear some of their misgivings uh, regarding what he is doing, but there is nothing really active. In the second part of the play, I mean, more near the end, then it becomes much more clear than they disagree with, with what he's doing. And so they start revoicing really their opinion, uh, saying that they disagree with, with Creon. And at some point, you even have Creon asking them what they think, what he should do. That's very interesting. Here you have uh, an elite king, uh, a principal character asking the chorus what he should do. That's some some something that is interesting to to think about too. Yes, gosh, is that extreme democracy or trying to show the weakness of a king 
yeah fascinating so and and this this view you've taken is, is very different from previous scholarship um because uh, mostly it's been come at from the the view of the elite characters themselves and, and what they tell us tells us quite a lot about or other questions all about previous scholarship and the view they have of the plays yes absolutely that that's that's a very important question and I, I think that's something classicists have to be aware of there is I mean scholarship is not a monolith it evolves throughout history and it's true that heroes and elite characters were much more commented upon and and, and analyzed than those little non-elite figures in tragedies. So why? Why is it so? Well, the, the first easy answer is that they are called secondary, not for no reason. They are indeed kind of secondary in the play. I'm not arguing here that they are more important than, uh, than the heroes of the play, than the principal characters. It's not, it's not that. My point of view is that they are, they are at least as worthy of research and, and study as the, the, the noble characters in, in the play. I think that there might be many reasons why scholarship until recently was much more focused on those elite characters. But one of the reasons might have had to do with this idealization of classical theater. It is almost as if some people thought that those Greek plays, they kind of fall from the sky into the the hands of the elite classicists of the, the early 19th century. And scholars sometimes have in the past forgotten that theater was not really, like a theater play was not written by a playwright for uh, to be read by elite citizens. It's not that. It was composed to be performed performed in front of an audience that encompassed citizens from many different backgrounds and non-citizens as well, or citizens of other cities of, uh, than Athens. And so there is this image of Greek theater, Greek classical theater, as being an elite cultural product that was until, until I don't know exactly when, I'm not quite sure if it's totally over yet. There is quite a lot of recent discussion and debate about that. But that was mainly studied by, let's say, the elite component of, of contemporary society. So as such, consciously or not, there was this idea that only the elite characters are worthy of our efforts, of our interpretative efforts. Recently, there has been a trend, I think that is fortunately. <laughs> so fortunately, there has been a trend that, that has tried to put literary texts, literary dramatic texts, such as the plays of Sophocles, back into their historical contexts. So scholars have tried to see them as products performed in a given society in a specific historical time and in link with specific socio-political problems or, or, or 
conditions and, and contexts. And within this new framework, then suddenly those non-elite characters, they become interesting to study because they can tell us a lot about what was going on there at the time in non-elite parts of, of Greek society. And from a, from a, yeah, from, from the point of view of the historical inquiry, it is very important as well. It is important to, to be able to, to have a look at Greek classical society as a whole, not just as the wrongly idealized part of, of it. And that, that's, that's something that we are still working on. I think I'm quite happy with that because the more we know about ancient Greek society and the more different points of view we can have from classicists from various backgrounds who come with different questions, the closer we can get to any sort of real historical understanding, if there is something like that. Yes, and I, I suppose that's particularly true of non-elite and, and generally lower class characters because we don't have archaeological records for them in the same way that we have statues and buildings built by the elites um, and, their, and their records or the records by other elites of the elites of previous societies. If we can tease out from a play something about the non-elites, then that's got to be um, something that adds quite a bit to the general uh, understanding of how Greek society really did work. Yeah, and, and I, th I think probably theatre is a good uh, place to start because, as, as I said, theatre was supposed to be performed and not only a written material for elites to read in their big houses. So it means that it should speak to various uh, socio-political groups in society. Some other literary sources that have reached us were more really elite, elite products intended for an elite audience, if you want, an elite readership, perhaps later. So yeah, it's 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 true that theater is is probably a good place to start. But I think that we we should really try to have a new look at Greek literary production from the, this point of view. There is, I mean, little characters, secondary characters appear in almost all literary sources, all Greek literary sources. There is still a lot to do on on that on that topic. So hopefully, I I may be able to do a bit more on that at some point. So thank you for, for that. I really appreciate uh, your time. Um, and yeah, hopefully you, one day you can come back and we'll speak again about some other exciting aspect of uh, Greek theatre. Yeah, absolutely. That would be my pleasure. <laughs> thank you for, for having me. <laughs> so nice to finish on a reminder about how vibrant and important theatre was to the whole of Greek society. It seems to me that although to some extent theatre was attended by only a portion of the population, as there were some exclusions, women and slaves most probably, but also those who had to work every day to maintain even a subsistence lifestyle, this was still a large portion of the population. And as Dr Payard was emphasising, the poets were working with the entire population in mind as they composed. Theatre, we can argue, reaches its pinnacle when it can speak to a demographically diverse audience at the same moment. That, we think, is what was achieved in the ancient Athenian theatre, 
And we can see it again in the Elizabethan age, where the highest quality plays are those that appeal to all sectors of the audience, not just the elites or the common man, the groundlings of the day. The admiration for Athenian theatre began as early as the 4th century BCE, at least in part as a response to the decline of Athenian power. As Athens lost its military primacy, first to Sparta and then to Macedon, the cultural supremacy of the previous century became idealised so that Athenian cultural excellence and influence could be maintained. It was a powerfully successful cultural model, first taken up by the Romans and then every subsequent European cultural, not to mention political, movement along the way. And what Dr. Payard shows is that this is reflected in the non-elite characters as well as the main protagonists and antagonists and reminds us that the plays were written to appeal to the common man as much as to their social superiors. Somewhere along the line, the study of the plays became an elite pastime. As Dr. Payard said, the plays were not conceived to be dropped from a height into the hands of the elite who had the capacity to understand them. No. We have to remember, and when we see a performance hopefully still feel, that they speak to us on an intellectual and emotional level. We live in a time when the idealisation of the classical period is falling away, and with that new freedom we can look at the plays for fresh insights and understanding of ancient Greek culture. My thanks to Dr Payard for her generosity with her time spent talking to me. If you'd like to contact her directly, I have posted her Twitter handle as part of the show notes for both interview episodes. Next time, we're going to stay with the Greeks for one more episode as I discuss a modern production of the satire play Trackers by Sophocles with director Jimmy Waters, who produced the Tony Harrison version of the play in London in 2017. Jimmy gives some great insights into what it's like to work with the satire play and the story, poetry and political commentary that Tony Harrison wrapped around it in his version. Following that, we have a short Christmas break and then we'll be back to Plautus in 2021. I look forward to your company next time. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com or ko-fi.com. Any support that you can give is very gratefully received and helps to offset the costs of the ever-growing library of texts and papers. If you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 